KBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info. We're glad to have all of you with us uh, today for Political Rewind and hope that many of you who have been listening to the uh, Judiciary Committee's impeachment hearing on NPR radio here at GPB uh, understand that we really feel there's such important political news happening today in Georgia. We thought you'd want to hear us on the air with that if, of course, it's the impeachment hearing that you primarily are interested in, as Ellen Reinhardt has said a couple minutes ago. You can certainly turn to uh, the uh, GPB news page and follow it there. But in the meantime, we have so much big news to talk about, and I want to get right to it with our panel. Greg Bluestein, a political reporter from the AJC, is with us to talk about all of the things that are happening here in the state. Greg Bluestein, and we'll introduce the rest of the panel, but while I'm mentioning your name, you have killed on this Kelly Leffler story for a week now. You have had every big development in this story from the start. So although you're almost always here on Wednesdays, I'm especially glad you're with us today. It was, it's been a very fascinating story yeah. and one that will not just shape the next year, but probably the immediate future of the Georgia GOP through 2022-2024 because this just shows this just telegraph telegraphs governor Kemp's uh, sort of ambitions to try to broaden the, the Republican Party's tent yeah and we're going to get to all that in a couple of minutes uh, first though Dr. Andra Gillespie is back with us um, she of course teaches political science at Emory University and uh, I'm really glad you're here to talk about the developments in the Kelly Leffler story today thanks for being here Andra thank you for having me and Heath Garrett uh, Republican strategist, and really, in many ways, a very important character in this whole drama as it's unfolded, because um, you are Johnny Isaacson's closest advisor. Johnny Isaacson stepping down, Leffler will take that seat. And uh, so we're going to be really interested in hearing your thoughts about that. But also, a little bit later in the show, you were up in Washington in the gallery, up in the gallery where you were able to watch um, Isaacson being honored in that marathon tribute to him in the United States Senate yesterday. Well, it's great to be here. It was really a historic day uh, for a lot of reasons we'll talk about lately, but I'm glad to be here with you all. All right, well, let's get to the Leffler story. Uh, Greg, uh, by this morning, it was no surprise that, that the governor had decided, despite enormous pressure from Doug Collins and his many supporters, conservative supporters out there, both political supporters and in the conservative media, and to some extent, President Trump himself, who wanted Collins named, we knew by this morning that when uh, Governor Kemp stepped into his ceremonial office down at the Capitol, it was Kelly Leffler who was going to be at his side and named the next senator from Georgia uh, until she stands for election. Yeah, I mean, the name Kelly Leffler was no surprise to, to political watchers for more than a week now. But what was important about today was her message, what she was going to say, because that was still not really known until about 730 this morning, um, what message she would have. Would she be would she be forceful in her in her support for Donald Trump and her conservative values? And that's that's really what she came out with um, straight out the gate, almost saying that she was pro wall, pro Trump, pro Second Amendment, pro federal uh, conservative judges. Um, she tried to do everything she she could 
to allay some of those concerns from conservative critics. Uh, why don't we do this? Uh, before we open it up for conversation about Leffler, let's listen. First, here's how Governor Kemp characterized Leffler as he introduced her this morning. Kelly Leffler will stand with our president, Senator Perdue, and their <laughs> allies in the House and Senate to keep America great. She will end this impeachment circus in Washington and get Congress back to working for the people of our country. She is a woman of faith and conviction who believes without a doubt that life begins at conception. She will champion the pro-life cause in Washington and stop the radical left's abortion on demand agenda. Kelly wants to strengthen our immigration laws and finish the border wall so we can stop Mexican drug cartels from flooding our streets right here in Georgia with drugs, weapons, violence, and fear. Uh, Andrew Gillespie uh, trying to establish Kelly Leffler's, and in a little while we'll hear her uh, do, do it herself, her credentials as a conservative, not the rhino mm -hmm. that people like Sean Hannity, uh, Congressman Matt Gates in Florida, and some Georgia uh, conservatives have tried to paint her as being, but it's still a hurdle she's going to have to uh, uh, jump. Yeah, and if we're going to get to some of the sound from her talk, I kind of want to talk about sort of how she presented herself there. Um, I think that hurdle is still there. And so just saying it, um, especially when you are a novice politician who doesn't have a track record, there isn't sort of a legacy of votes that you've had, um, you know, not even in terms of activism, in terms of actually kind of being involved at the front lines of some issues. So, you know, I think that, you know, this was a start, but it's going to have to be matched by her behavior once she's in the Senate. Yeah. Uh uh, Heath, uh, Andres, obviously uh, making a point that matters uh, to Republicans uh, right now. And there are conservatives out there who still need to be convinced as recently as, if not last night, certainly the night before, Sean Hannity was telling his fans that they should deluge Brian Kemp's office with calls complaining that he wasn't picking a real conservative for this seat. Yeah, it's unfortunate for us as Republicans that somehow Kelly was falsely defined kind of in the national media, right? There's no question the president uh, expressed his preference for Doug Collins, who's been loyal and a great defender of the president on uh, television in every way and is a great congressman and would make a great appointment to the U.S. Senate. But uh, unfortunately, some folks, uh, I think, got out and tried to paint and create a narrative around Kelly Leffler that wasn't accurate before she had a chance to speak. Her hands were tied. She needed to either get the appointment or not. And I do think there's there's plenty of work to be done uh, in that regard. But at the end of the day, I think knowing Kelly, as I have since about 2008, uh, she's not the person that Sean Hannity and others defined her as. She is a very conservative businesswoman who has a, her own thoughts on all the issues. Um, however, uh, she is not known, and therefore uh, nature abhors a vacuum in politics. And while there was a vacuum, others jumped in and, and, and tried to fill that vacuum. I think she'll be an articulate defender of these principles over time. And it was a big vacuum big. because November 18th, you know, about three weeks ago is when she submitted her application, the deadline right before the Democratic debate. It was the deadline uh, that Brian Kemp had set for Senate applications. So she submitted the application. Um, by that point, a lot of insiders kind of tipped off that this this was going to be the governor's pick. Um, at least they assumed that. Um, and so there was weeks then for critics to start growing their pushback, you know, that mounting pushback. Um, so at first, there's just a few voices. But, you know, even a week and a half ago, it was, it was starting to get clamorous, really loud. Um, and, 
And then you've seen it grow to Sean Hannity, Lou Dobbs, and all over Fox News over the weekend. And to me, it's been really interesting because the same conservative outlets that, you know, champion any decision Governor Kemp made last year and earlier this year during the campaign and after he took office were also the same outlets now forcefully criticizing him. So he, he's gotten a taste of what it's like to be on the, the receiving end of some of that. Greg, Greg, there really is no journalist who's been watching this more closely than you have. So I have a quick question for you, and, I, and I'd love to get Andra and Heath's thoughts on this as well. Is it fair to say that in some ways Governor Kemp created this problem himself when he decided on this whole notion of opening up the process for applications. In other words, if he kind of knew Kelly Leffler was the person he thought would be best suited for the job, and we'll talk about why that might be in a couple minutes, if he had done the standard thing and just kept his own counsel, not had people out there, you know, putting themselves forward, he might have been able to introduce her uh, in the exact vacuum, without the vacuum that you're talking about. But when people started saying, oh, Leffler's put in her application, as you said, that gave time for the conservatives to begin attacking her. So I don't know that he knew Leffler was going to be the pick from square one, right? Um, I, I think from what I've heard, the name kind of popped up into the process. But I think one of the problems that critics see with the process is that it went on so long. It was three months. Yeah. Um, two, it was it was about a month until they opened it up, and then it was two months of applications or so, something like six six or seven weeks, um, and it, and then after the process closed, way back in the, November eighteenth, it was you know two or three weeks. Yeah, he, Keith, then. would you say that this was an interesting exercise in openness? That probably taught a lot of other gubernatorial leaders and others to get should never try doing again. <laughs> well, there is a limit to how open, right, yeah. a process is. I do think that the governor, if he were sitting here today, would would say, in hindsight, uh, had this uh, choice been able to be made a month ago, that probably would have staved off uh, what we've experienced. However, the governor has been steadfast, not only in this appointment, but in a number of other appointments around the state of being much more deliberative on his judges, on the DAs, the the great new historic DA in Cobb County. Uh, County leaders were pushing for months for him to make a decision, and he ended up picking a great. But he believes that by being deliberative, he won't make mistakes, and he is trying to change the fabric and the makeup of the type of candidate that he's picking here and appointments he's making around the state, and that's taking more time. But there's no question from a practical standpoint uh, that openness for that long a period of time gave the created the vacuum that, that other people started. To Andra? So I'll confess that I haven't paid as much attention to the timing um, and the duration of the deliberation process for all of Governor Kemp's um, appointees. There is something to be said for taking too long to appoint people to certain key positions. Um, you know, a long time ago, I remember like just digging into David Dinkins' appointment process, um, and he took too long, and that really did upend his mayoralty um, in New York City in the late 80s and in the early 1990s. Um, so there is something to be said for that. I think with this process, the nerd in me loved the sort of democratization, the open application mm-hmm. process. I think there are cool things that I think I might want to write about later when I get some time, whenever that is. <laughs> On the other hand, I am sympathetic to the criticisms that I've heard from Republicans about why this took as long as it did. And you could have done the same thing and cut the time period in half. 
Um, and I suspect that if somebody like Kelly Loeffler were interested in this, that she would have still turned it in like on the deadline, like a month and a half ago, if that had been the deadline. Yeah. So I think, you know, I think there is something to be said for the have this being done sooner than it, it was. Now, a couple of counterpoints for their criticism is one of the big concerns for Republicans was that she wouldn't have as much time to raise a lot of campaign cash to get her operation going. Well, now we know that's not as much of a problem because she's willing to spend $20 million of her own money at least. <laughs> that's kind of flabbergasting. To start, yeah, to start with. Um, so the fundraising aspect of it isn't as, as key um, as, it, as it would have been with another candidate. The other thing that, that Kemp's advisors routinely say is they, they really did get names that they didn't expect uh, that, that obviously weren't picked for the Senate, but who could also become appointments down the road for other positions. Um, Alan Poole, um, Robin Crittenden, those are two administration officials who both applied and were both highly sought, uh, thought to African American. of. To, to African-American administration officials, highly thought of within the Kemp administration. Um, so they could be potentially appointees for other positions. And also they got 500 plus names and applications. Some of them were jokes and some of them were pranks and, and some of them weren't serious, but a lot of them were. And so when they're looking to fill out, this is lesser concern, but when they're looking to fill out a bunch of boards and appointments and all the things that a governor has to do, they've now got hundreds of new names to look through. Uh, Greg, they to do. what extent are, are you aware of the governors reaching out to the people who applied? How many of the people got a direct call? Which people got direct calls from the governor or one of his top uh, 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 you know, administration uh, people? And who got letters? Do we know anything about how they handled the rejections? Um, a lot of those phone calls came this past weekend. Um, okay. Once the news was kind of out late last week, um, they started making those phone calls uh, over the weekend and, and, and through Monday. Uh, I understand he actually, after weeks of silence with him and Doug Collins, they finally uh, talked to okay. after the Georgia-Georgia Tech game on Saturday. You know, I, I, I don't mean to interrupt you, except yeah. I, I realize that I'm burying the lead here, and, and I want to get to that, and then we can continue this conversation about the strategic thinking around all of this, and that is this. Kelly Leffler never having been a candidate for public office uh, before today. Uh, nevertheless, somebody who's been in the public eye for a very long time and certainly knows how to handle herself in, in public situations. But today, we heard her for the first time as, a, as an appointee to the United States Senate and a candidate for the special election in 2020. Uh, state her case. Talk about what she believes in at the governor's office. Let's listen to a bit of what she said. I haven't spent my life trying to get to Washington. So here's what folks are going to find out about me. I'm a lifelong conservative, pro-Second Amendment, pro-Trump, pro-military, and pro-wall. I make no apologies for my conservative values, and I look forward to supporting President Trump's conservative judges. I am strongly pro-life. The abortion on demand agenda is immoral. In the Senate, I look forward to supporting S-160, Senator Lindsey Graham's 20-week abortion ban. No one will fight harder for our state, for our nation, for our president, and for our conservative values. Because here's the thing, contrary to what you might see in the media, not every strong American woman is a liberal. Many of us are conservatives and proud of it. Andrew Gillespie, you said that you knew we were going to hear from uh, Leffler. Now we have 
first of all, just your general reaction or comments. And then I want to ask you a very specific question based on something you've observed often on this show in the past. But okay. Give us your general take. So, <clears throat> you know, I think especially with that last little sound bite, I think Leffler tries is is can present a sort of counter narrative to kind of traditional liberal feminism. Um, and I think she was trying to sort of present that. And it's important that Governor Kemp named a woman to this position. You know, if we think about the gains that women have made in terms of representation in Congress, it's almost all been on the Democratic side. Um, and so she's going to join a handful of female Republican senators um, in the Senate. It's going to help move um, the party and actually the chamber toward greater gender parity, even though there's still a really long way to go in the Senate um, for that. Um, so my, my, my reaction to the speech, and I watched it this morning and tried to watch the impeachment at the same time, which is a really difficult task, <laughs> was she was sounding off talking points. So I'm still waiting to be convinced of what she's actually going to do as a senator. Um, you know, I know that there are going to be some people who are interested in whether or not her conservative bona fides are real. I'm just interested in what she's going to do because she just is, you know, a tabula rasa to me. I don't know what's going yeah. what's going on there. And and I have to admit, like she said, the talking points, um, they didn't seem natural to me. Like she talked about the socialist agenda. She said socialism a lot. You know, that's a that 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 is a group tested talking point on Republicans. So like it's not just Democrats who like you message test stuff. That one is clearly something that resonates. It didn't seem like that naturally came out of her mouth, even though she clearly you know is a capitalist and a businesswoman. Um, so I think I'm w waiting to see. Like the one thing where I could see. Or you're going to talk about certain things with a certain credibility and gravitas is, you know, if she gets on the Senate Agricultural Committee. Right. Right. She's she's got the bearings to be able to talk about that kind of stuff. Everything else that she said, I was like, oh, that sounds like a talking point to me. Um, and I'm going to wait to see what you do well, when you actually get into office. And, and everything was a counterpoint to all the conservative yeah, criticism. Right. But let me ask you this. And then I, I know Heath can't wait to get in here. But um I quote you with some regularity on this show when we talk about somebody like Kelly Leffler. You have said repeatedly that the notion that women will simply vote for another woman not thinking about the issues is absurd. And so what's interesting about this is, yes, I, as, as you did, I heard that last moment, uh, don't think that all women are liberals and that's an attempt to reengage some of them. But everything that she, it was in her speech was contrary to the kind of issues that we've seen, especially suburban women, have wanted to embrace. So it's an odd sort of dynamic. Yeah. So, you know, what? it was interesting. So last night I was on another network with Brian Robinson and, and we were talking about this stuff. And so we were talking about sort of what is going on with suburban white women, particularly, you know, in, in, in the north metro Atlanta suburbs. And so is it a question of them having defected to vote Democratic or, and this didn't really come up have they just become democratic yeah. so were these moderate republican women you know maybe independent leaning republican women who now look at the sort of you know blanket of issues and have decided that well i didn't leave the republican party but the republican party left me mm -hmm. so if these people have become democrats it's probably gonna be really hard, hard to, to get, get them, them back, back. Heath, i know you're trying dying to jump in well, I think the number of observations here. Number one, I do think it's a historic moment for the state of Georgia, right? First female senator? Actually, the second, second. A little no, piece of history. No, in 100 years, I Yeah, 1922, I think yeah. it was. Rebecca Felton mm -hmm. was a U.S. senator for a day. A day. 
and, and, and now we have uh, Kelly Leffler. And so I think that Governor Kemp deserves a lot of credit for making history here and, and putting uh, action to his words on the campaign trail that he was going to do this with his appointments uh, around the state. I know Kelly Leffler very, very well, have worked with her uh, on a number of projects, including a number of campaigns around the state. She has fairly well-defined principles, and she, I think, will have the ability to articulate those. I think if there was a lack of kind of natural flow here, it was because the vacuum created the need for the speech to defend rather than introduce. And I do think that when it comes to gender politics, uh, I do think that the professor is correct. I don't think women will vote for a woman just because she's a woman. What I do think we see in focus groups and we see in the voting is the fact that she is a woman gives a number of people, including some independent men, uh, permission to at least look at her and listen to her as a Republican that we haven't had as gender politics starts to drive towards women should vote for women when they can and those types of issues that are out there. So I think it's going to really affect our science as to whether or not she gives permission to people to listen to a conservative message. And that's what we hope that she's able to do, given her background in business uh, and in agriculture. Greg, the um, <clears throat> excuse me, um, a number of people and organizations jumped in immediately to say they support her fully. Mitch McConnell issued a statement saying we back her 100 percent. We'll do everything we can to elect her. In November of 2020, the NRSC, same kind of support, somewhat more lukewarm support from uh, from others. I thought, uh, uh, you know, that there were some of them that were yeah. kind of like, yeah, OK. Yeah, there's three main <laughs> buckets. There are the supporters who gave her their wholehearted endorsement. There were the more measured approaches, and yeah. then there was the people who outright said no way. Yeah. Um, I put some really interesting characters in that middle group, the, the more measured. House Speaker David Ralston was Yeah, one David of them. Ralston's comments, I mean, he said, yes, I support her, um, but it wasn't— uh, He said, I look forward to, you know, learning more about her positions. Yes. Because remember, she is un, an unknown to yeah. a vast majority of these Republican officials. She was not— a fixture at the Capitol. She is not, a, you know, a fixture in Republican grassroots events. She's a donor, but that's a sort of different, you know, circle. Go ahead, finish what you wanted and, and to say. So, 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 you know, as 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 much as Governor Kemp and some other, uh, you know, Republicans might know of her, a lot of these guys still need to get to know her um, and, and don't know much about okay, her. Okay, but but here's what I think is interesting about this. Um, you could certainly have framed the last week as a an argument between. President Trump, who clearly wanted Doug Collins, and Governor Kemp, who clearly wanted to ha have a diverse, more diverse ticket. I get that. Now, it didn't come down to that because people like Matt Gates jumped into the uh, a game and they were easier targets. But still, this was in some ways a fight between the president and Brian Kemp. But Heath, because the president wasn't as overt in the statements he made uh, it kind of gave room for the people who normally are nervous about, uh, uh, um, uh, you know, being in any way critical of the president or not supporting him. People like Mitch McConnell to immediately jump in and support her. Had Trump come out and said, I think Brian Kemp was really wrong. It should be mm -hmm. Doug Collins. I don't know that the NRSC and Mitch McConnell and some of the others would have immediately supported her with the enthusiasm that some of them did. 
I think they're right. The, pre- the president was very much pro Doug Collins, but it was very he was very specific in his language, which he oftentimes is. He wasn't anti Kelly Leffler, and he wasn't anti Brian Kemp. Right? He the, again the loyalty that, that Governor Kemp has had in many respects, and so I thought that the, that the president did give Kemp some a little bit of wiggle room here uh, to make the appointment, and gave Senator McConnell and others. Now, you know, Kelly has been on the NRSC, the Republican Senatorial Committee's radar going all the way back to 2013. So she's not an unknown entity to Senator McConnell and others. So the mention of her name, which actually occurred the day we announced that Johnny was going to retire, she was in the top five or six names mm-hmm. that came up because of being a female, being a potential self-funder already on the radar, I do think helped with some of this first bucket that Greg talked about, those who came out of full force. It's very helpful to the NRSC if the decks are cleared and she's the appointee, and we don't have the kind of soft version of a Republican primary because resources are going to be limited in 2020. And uh, the idea of having to come in and defend two Senate uh, seats is already daunting enough on Andrea, you, I think you disagree. You kind of frowned when I made the statement I did. So well, I'm going to wait for two things. One, I'm going to wait to see in the next 48 hours if President Trump says something on Twitter. Right. And then two, I want to wait to see what Doug Collins does, right? Because Uh, if if he feels emboldened because of the fact that he knows that he was Trump's guide to challenge Leffler, then I think all bets are off. I will say this. um, I disagree with a lot that what Governor Kemp does, but I will give him kudos for this. I mean, I just somebody needed to stand up. I mean, the Republican Party and a lot of these folks are going to be around. And I'm not saying President Trump is not going to be politically relevant after he's out of office, but they're going to be around long after Donald Trump. And they need to think about how to preserve the party. And while I probably wouldn't have chosen Kelly Loeffler for this position, I would have gone with somebody who has some more experience. The idea that he was actually forward thinking about that and willing to kind of defend himself against President Trump, I think, is a good thing. And I hope that other Republicans recognize that you don't have to go lockstep with the president or all the pundits on Fox News or on talk radio if you know your state and you know sort of like what you're doing better. All right. So Andra talked about what is the president going to say, if anything, what is Doug Collins going to say? And she also at the end alluded to it. What are the Fox News hosts going to say yeah. tonight about Collier Leffler? Well, we know what Collins is going to say because he's he sent out a statement in the moment, like right at 10 yeah. 1 a.m. Uh, and that was essentially he still is not ruling out a challenge. He's still kind of sticking by what he told me a couple of weeks ago, which is he's strongly considering a but challenge. But right now I got impeachment to deal but with. But right now I have impeachment to deal with, which is what you were also watching yeah. on, on split screens right. this morning. Um, we don't know what President Trump's going to say or do. Um, some of Collins' supporters says, hasn't he already done enough? You know, it's already very clear who he backs. Um, but there is a difference because it's one thing when anonymous sources tell us or the Wall Street Journal that, um, and it's printed in the AJC and the Wall Street Journal, but it's another thing when he tweets it out or says it on TV or whatever. So that continues to be a giant, giant question. And the best C- Governor Kemp's folks can can hope for is a stalemate, you know, is, is either he continues to be silent or he says something, you know, nice about both candidates, which, which they're really pushing for. All right. I got to get to a break in a minute, but let's talk about this as journalists for just a moment. Um, what, when should we expect that Leffler is going to be willing to talk to us? And when is she going to get out of the campaign trail to allow journalists to start covering what she does and for the public to see her? Well, January 1st will be a, you know, a forced 
move, right? Yeah, because that's, that's when she's that's sworn right. in. So she will be surrounded. Is she sworn in that at that at, at, on the first? Is that the date for it's some the first she, week? She can or, be. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Go I don't ahead. Know if that will be the day. Go but, ahead. But it'll be the first round. Yeah, the first week of January. Yeah. Or something. Go ahead. So that's when the, an entire swarm of national media will be yeah. founding her in the halls of of, yeah. of the Capitol. Yeah. Um, surely we're hoping for a sit down with her long before then. Um, but I'm not sure exactly. I, I, I imagine she'll be in hunker down mode a little bit. Um, you know, maybe even raising, even though she doesn't have to raise too much cash mm-hmm. right now, raising some cash, but also introducing herself to a lot of these Republicans who are very skeptical of her. What would you, Heath, you're, no. you're a consultant. Yeah. What would you, if you were running her camp, are you going to run her campaign? I'm not, not going to run her campaign. Okay, then uh, good. Uh, what would your advice to her be right now? She she did fine today, I thought, in watching it. I'm not sure if Andre, I mean, she was tentative a little bit. She. She her voice was a little quiet, and but she already but she said, "Look, I'm a quiet person anyway." Right. But clearly, she's going to have to go a ways to gain the confidence that you want a candidate to have out there on the stump. What would you be advising her to do right now? Well, number one is to get really confident. For those of you who don't know Kelly, Kelly is one of the most intelligent people that we've seen in at this level of she, politics. She's been in a on long my. Time. She and her husband Jeff were on Two Way Street, my other show, a couple years back, and. Uh, you're exactly right. They are both smart, engaging people. So smart, give engaging. Them that. She's very deliberative. Yep. So she's been appointed to the world's most deliberative body uh, in a lot of ways, and and, and that's going to be her style. I think she's going to hunker down and make sure that she's thought through all the nuances of all the subcommittee policies that she hasn't had to think of as a non-appointed uh, Senate senator for the United States of America. And I think she's got to find her voice on the campaign trail. But I do think she will immediately, I would recommend, and she's going to sit down and start sit down with the grassroots leadership, the grass tops leadership, state Republican leaders, their House members and state senators who don't know her as well. She's very engaging one-on-one, and she needs to use that to her advantage in these meetings. And then she's also fairly savvy with the media, and so and she has a good media team around her. So they've got to take advantage of that. She's going to be, you know, Senator Isaacson at, at his age isn't going to be a media maven, <laughs> right, uh, on Twitter and, and on Facebook. But Kelly, has a, you know, with youth and with her kind of already public persona, has the ability to take advantage of some of that and introduce herself in ways that you didn't do historically uh, through digital means. And then I think she does need to sit down with journalists as soon as possible. Amen. Um, yeah, we're you know, hoping that she'll do this show. But I think she's she's capable and competent uh, to, to do that in a way that they shouldn't be afraid of, uh, which is always your natural tendency with a first-time candidate. But uh, she, she's very good with the media uh, when she engages. Andre, I would give you the last word before I take a break. And I would say start it now. I yeah. mean, take advantage of the Quickly. fact that you've got like this month and that lots of people come in and out of Atlanta to meet with folks. Well, among That's other right. things, and I want to talk just briefly after the break about this, is you're not going to have too much time before at least one Democrat decides, now that we know who the mm-hmm. Republican is, the Democrats are going to start maneuvering. And she would love, it would be great if she has clear space before that yeah. happens. I assume. All right, let's do this. Let's get our first break of the show out of the way. When we come back, let's just speculate a little bit on who we do think might be jumping in now that the Republicans have their choice, uh, or at least the governor has his choice. We'll see about Democrats after these messages. Welcome back to Political Rewind. Uh, Greg Bluestein is with us. Heath Garrett, Dr. Andre Gillespie. We're talking first about uh, Kelly Leffler being chosen by the governor as uh, his choice for the U.S. Senate. Before we get back to our, our substantive conversation, two things. 
First of all, we had a great day, Sam and Tom and I, out in Athens, uh, meeting with the students in uh, Audrey Haynes and Charles Bullock's political science classes, meeting some of the journalism uh, students out there, and uh, and it was just great. And doing the show from the studios of WUGA, th- those folks could not have been uh, kinder to us and more willing to help us uh, make the show a success. And we were excited because we were able to announce finally publicly that starting on Monday, January 6th, we are going to be doing the show five days a week. The show, which started out as a one-day-a-week show back five and a half years ago, is now going to be a full week-long show. And I appreciate all of you who have either texted me, emailed me, uh, responded on Twitter, Facebook Live, saying that this is something you've waited for a long time. Good for you. Me, I'm looking forward to a year of sheer exhaustion, but (laughs) it'll be a lot of fun. Uh, All right, Bluestein, it's time for Democrats, isn't it? It who's going to jump in? Who's stepping up to you here? That's a, it's, so the timing is the great question yeah. because I thought it was going to be you know, next week at the very, very latest until all this Republican infighting. Now there's a chance they could wait a little longer because – I'm not sure of this, but there's a chance they could wait a little longer because why not let Republicans kind of continue battling each other and let them great point. ding each other. Um, no, no word yet. Uh, I haven't gotten a firm timeline, but there are – a number of names still interested, including um, Michael Thurman, a frequent guest of the show, the DeKalb CEO, Sherry Boston, the DeKalb DA, Reverend Raphael Warnock, um, who has made a lot of rumbling about. Yeah, Warnock. Run. I saw Warnock out at a, an event of Democratic presidential candidates the day after the debate, and I was surprised how openly he was willing to say to me, you know, I've got to be seriously thinking about it. I don't know if I'll really do it, but it's something that I can't not consider. And everyone's been very frank about it. That's, yeah. that's what's unique, interesting to me, too, because whenever you ask... Yeah, any of the any of these potential candidates I just listed, they said, and Jen Jordan as well, state senator, they say, yeah, I'm still considering, I'm still open. Now, the, what Democrats are hoping for and probably praying for is the, not is a unified team behind one candidate. Um, obviously, Matt Lieberman's in the race, so mm-hmm. the, the, their party will be fractured in a, in a way. But everyone to get behind one party back candidate, whether they can actually do that, remains to be seen. Andrew, um, do you think Greg is right that Democrats would be wise to let Republicans, conservatives and whatever you want to call mainstreamers or or Kemp Republicans battle this out for a while and and not worry about jumping in too quickly? Well, I mean, I think you can do that up to a point. But then there also comes the point at which you've got to get your name out there and you've got to start fundraising and you've got to start putting that infrastructure together. So, yeah, I mean, if you wait for a couple of weeks, it probably won't hurt. But I wouldn't go so far into January without kind of having a game plan. Yeah, that seems right to me too, Heath, right? There's a time crunch, right? Uh, One of the other arguments Governor Kemp can make is by delaying the appointment. It's not giving Democrats time to get themselves as organized and as funded. Uh, The other thing that may be slowing Democrats down is the choice of Kelly Loeffler is a good political choice uh, for Republicans in the state of Georgia going into 2020 and 2022. She's very helpful to David Perdue. She's very helpful to Donald Trump at the top of the ticket. And the idea that she has the ability to spend $20 million is going to cause folks to have to sit there and say, well, how are we going to match these resources? And do they wait and take a pass and look at 2022 as opposed to 2020? Do they? I mean, I think it's going to really affect some of the thoughts. And the other bigger question I have for Democrats is who does Stacey Abrams want to be mm-hmm. the nominee for the Democrats here if there is such a thing given this special yeah. election? I mean, one of the things on many Democratic minds are is the fact that there are four white candidates running 
white Democratic candidates running in the Purdue race, and there's no African-American candidate yet in either of the races, no high-profile African-American candidate yet in either race. Um, and that's why, to many Democrats, Reverend Warnock would be so appealing. But he's not the only African-American candidate in the mix, including Thurman, Sherry Thurman, Boston, yeah. Ed Tarver, the former U.S. attorney from Augusta. So those are all other names that are also potentially out there. And they've all gone to D.C. or, or had D.C. folks come to them here in Atlanta to talk to them about a potential run. And I also think Caesar Mitchell could make an attractive candidate. Uh, you know, if he, if he his, I've heard his name a couple of times from some of my Democratic friends. You know— all of our best panelists are going to be off running for office, and we're going to lose them through 2020. I mean, we've already lost a number of them that I hate to see go. Andrew Gillespie, as long as we're talking about the 2020 cycle, mm-hmm. and I th- think it ties into this question about whether there's going to be an African-American Senate candidate or not. Um, yesterday, Kamala Harris drops out of the race. Uh, you know, and, and it was, I think, for many people who watched her early on, as I certainly did, I know you did, a little baffling as to what happened. She's a dynamic, charismatic, kind of joyous. She's smart, engaging. She's got all the elements. Mm-hmm. And yet it didn't come together for her for a variety of reasons. And I'll give you a chance to say why you think. But I also want to say, what does it mean that she's now out, that we know that um, we may at some point, we're not going to have a, there's no black candidate on the December debate stage at this point, because Cory Booker hasn't made it at this point. Yet. <laughs> if there's not an African-American Democrat president, Democratic presidential candidate, how is it, what's that going to mean to Georgia African-American voters through the 2020 cycle, do you think? Well, um, Georgia Dem- uh, African-American Democratic voters are Democratic voters. Um, and we've seen overall that Democrats are really enthusiastic about the race and that they're particularly motivated. Um, and... Um, I think there are a lot of Democrats who at this point are like yellow dog Democrats. So they're basically vote for anybody against Donald Trump. Um, and so I think the question is, what's going to be the discussion and the debate within the party about leadership and whether or not the party has done everything that it could do to make sure that uh, diverse candidates have an equal shot at getting in? Um you know, this question has kind of come up. I can't say that the reason why Kamala Harris dropped out was because of racism or sexism. There no, are some yeah. fundamental things that right. I can look at that say this was, wasn't her time. There were mistakes that she made that actually ended up proving to be detrimental to her campaign. Um, and so I think we also have to remember that in terms of giving people a shot sometimes, like when the fix is in and you never win, that's one story. But just because she didn't make it this time, it didn't mean that she was destined or entitled to to, to win. Um, and so we'll just have to wait and see. And the other thing that I will say is that if the nominee ends up being white or a white male in particular, I think the Democratic Party is at the point now where it is highly unlikely that their uh, uh, vice presidential running pick will not be somebody yeah. who is diverse. I think, okay, so I want to make sure that that the way in which I frame my question makes sense, because um, you certainly spoke to it in a way. Um, I was not suggesting that Kamala Harris may have had to drop out because ap- people weren't going to support an mm-hmm. African-American. Simply, does the presence of an African-American candidate in an active role out there, mm-hmm. say in the de- December debate, really energize voters in a different way? And you, what you basically said is... Not necessarily. People are committed to voting. 
Um, I think people are committed to voting. I also think that probably we're not going to see great ratings for this next um, debate because it's right before Christmas. Yeah. So I think a lot of people are not going to be paying they, attention anymore um, to that. So, I mean, I think that there's some practical things. Yeah, I think the optics are bad if that debate stage looks all white. Yeah. And I will point out, Tulsi Gabbard is on that stage and she's not exactly white. So, um, oh, she's made the December debate. She, as I of didn't yesterday, remember that. At least okay. that's yesterday? what Julian Castro okay. like sent in an and email. And Cooper like on the cusp. As, yeah, on the cusp. And I think cusp. he's going to... I think he's yeah. going to end up making hey, it. Hey, okay. But it's, it's yeah. So, you know, I, I think, yes, if it were there, it, it, it would look bad. But people have made calculations about who they think is viable in this mm. race. Yeah. Um, and I think sometimes it, it and so if, if, if voters, including African-American and other racial and ethnic minority voters, have made the decision that some of the candidates of color probably aren't going to be able to go to go the distance Right. Then people have had their choice and people have had their right. say. And I think we have to be circumspect, not rule out the ways that discrimination could affect or perceptions of discrimination could mm-hmm. affect their chances. But we also have to recognize that there are other possible explanations. And in Harris's yeah. case, like just uneven campaign management, uneven message probably did more for her um, to do her in than her racial yeah, or gender. Yeah, identity. I think that's probably true. Uh, Heath, uh, I made a good point. Who the heck scheduled a Democratic presidential debate five days before Christmas and, I might add, right before Hanukkah, for goodness sake? You know, I wonder if the Democratic committee got together and said, hey, we have too many of these anyway, so let's put one right there so that it won't have any damage to the uh, party brand, right, uh, over time. It is an excuse for reporters to go to California, though, for over December. So That's a good point. I I will add, I think Kamala Harris is now in the top, along with Stacey Abrams, is in the top three choices for vice president pick if it is a white nominee for the Democratic Party, not just for racial reasons, but I think that that's going to play, play a major role. And, and I actually, on paper, had her as my front runner in the Democratic uh, primary uh, because of the way the Democratic caucuses are set up, right? Had she gotten to the votes in the caucuses, she would have done better. I think she's also a victim, like many of the Republicans were in 2016, of having just too many candidates yeah. out there, right, with limited resources. There aren't that many lanes in a primary, Republican or Democrat. Greg, you saw her, obviously, on the campaign trail. Uh, she was a dynamic candidate. She really, her smile lights up a room. She has such great enthusiasm. She's so smart. Uh, and we watched her perform in Senate hearings where she, we saw um, just how good she can be. Uh, it, it, I find it really interesting that f- for the reasons that Honor mentioned, Medicare for all, you know, saying, yep, I'm going to go for that, then withdrawing her uh, uh, commitment to that, apparently terrible campaign management, top-level management that just didn't do her any favors. Yeah, if you hadn't read the New York Times story over the yeah. weekend, the, the <laughs> kind of previewed what was about to happen with the campaign, teetering on the edge of, of insolvency and falling apart. It's a great read because it shows you they had a bifurcated management structure with her sister as a campaign chair and mm-hmm. another another well-known operative in California, and they both had different priorities, and her messaging changed seen yep. by the month. Yep. And, of course, financial fundraising was, was, was a difficulty for her with so many other candidates and the rise of Pete Buttigieg taking at least some of her, her, her base. And so it's really interesting, too, to see which candidates, um, uh, you know, take cut into that, to benefit most from from her dropping out, because um, it's not like you know Bernie Sanders dropping out helping Elizabeth Warren. It's not as easy as that. It's because uh, her supporters can go to as many as six or seven different camps pretty easily. All right. Um, well, we're going to watch and see how that develops. Uh, by the way, we mentioned Cory Booker a couple times. Mm-hmm. When, when I saw Booker, 
at uh, over at at, uh, uh, at the uh, Ebenezer Baptist Church in an event the day after the uh, uh, debate. I, I mentioned, I said, hey, uh, Senator, you know, Andrew Gillespie is a frequent panelist on this. His face lit up because oh. you wrote the book on Cory Booker as mayor of Newark. Yes, and I just wanted you to thank know. You. He was very glad to hear your name. <laughs> you kind of kickstarted the whole campaign. You did. I, I won't take that kind of credit. <laughs> uh, let's talk about impeachment just for a minute. Mm-hmm. Uh, Andre, you, like me, mm-hmm. I was watching it and also trying to watch um, uh, the uh, announcement out of the governor's office at the same time. Uh, we don't have, we're not going to get into a lot of it because I want to talk about Johnny Isaacson's big day yesterday. But here's my observation, and I want to hear your take. Um, we saw that contentious, angry uh, uh, he- series of hearings over in the Intelligence Committee with people like Devin Nunes really uh, sabotaging or trying to sabotage the process. We come to the Judiciary Committee, and today Doug Collins, as ranking member, is leading the fight to, to support President Trump. Let's listen to what his opening remarks were, but then I want to talk to you about the tone of the rest of the morning. Here's uh, Doug Collins in his opening statement this morning. What a disgrace to this committee to have the committee of impeachment simply take from other entities and rubber stamp it. You see, why do the things that I say matter about fact witnesses and actually hearing and actually having this a due process? Because, by the way, just a couple of months ago, the Democrats got all sort of dressed up, if you would, and says, we're going to have due process protection for the president and good fairness throughout this. This is the only committee in which the president would even have a possibility. But no offense to you, the law professors. The president has nothing to ask you. You're not going to provide anything he can't read. And his attorneys have nothing else. Put witnesses in here that they can be fact witnesses who can be actually cross-examined. That's fairness. And every attorney on this panel knows that. This is a sham. So Doug Collins complaining that they're not calling fact what he calls the fact witnesses and, and being troubled by the four law professors, three of whom were basically saying they've seen evidence that supports an impeachment and, and, and Jonathan Turley for the Republicans Rather thoughtfully saying, I think he's cre- there are some problems there. I don't think they've, they've found all the evidence they need yet. Well, here's one of the reasons I wanted to bring this up, at least briefly. Yes, Collins was his usual, uh, uh, you know, tough-minded, argumentative self there. But the rest of this hearing, I thought, was remarkably well-mannered and kind of thought out in a considerable way that – that I could follow an argument. I mean, sure, the Republicans still won't admit to anything, but did you, the tone was so different than the uh, uh, the, the hearings we watched for the last couple of weeks. So I had to pop out and go to a meeting, okay. so I missed the tone down yeah. part. Um, <laughs> I could see uh, Nadler and Collins sort of as the Leffler announcement was going on, and, and I expected that, so I kind of was like, okay, I don't necessarily need to pay attention to that. What I saw was the procedural fight that was starting to happen, yeah. the attempt to try to table um, the entire hearing yeah, at the on, beginning the of it. Republicans did do that. And so I was like, oh, this is going to be pugilistic. I mean, I think, you know, part of the reason why um, uh, Nancy Pelosi decided that she would assign at least the inquiry part to the Intelligence Committee was, if you remember from the Mueller hearing, they did judiciary first and then they did intelligence. And it seemed like 
there were fewer histrionics in the intelligence hearing in the second half of that day than there were in the judiciary part of that hearing. And just in terms of skills, in terms of actually being able to manage the room and sort of your rowdy colleagues, Adam Schiff is better at that than Jerry Nadler is. Um, and so, yes, it was going to have to go through yeah. um, the Judiciary Committee at some point because that's the committee that writes articles yeah. of impeachment. But I don't think Speaker Pelosi actually trusted Nadler to actually be able to handle a hearing. Right. And so it was probably sort of, a, you know, in, in her mind, it made sense to have, have all of that fight go on with a more capable sort of stage manager in intelligence and then just come over to judiciary. But here's what I will say. I hear that and I think it's absolutely true that, that Pelosi did not want Nadler, who got pushed around in a few earlier hearings by Republicans, to be the lead on all of this. But, Heath, I thought that the attorneys on both sides asked questions today that were considered, thoughtful, and that gave the law professors on both sides of this an opportunity to present information that truly was helpful to anybody who was bothering to watch to think about how they think this should move forward. And I would give Doug Collins credit when it was his turn, when it was the Republicans' turn to question, and he took the lead on that. Uh, he was very civil. He was, uh, again, he, he was deliberative in the kinds of questions he asked. And we know that Collins is well-liked across the aisle, even though he's very firmly in the Trump camp. Right. And I think he showed a little of that today. He's got a sense of humor. Uh, he doesn't treat the Democrats on the committee as the enemy. So I thought all in all, in the long run, it was a more honest presentation of what is happening up, up there. I think you're right on the tone, and I think you're right on who the players are. I mean, Doug Collins does have a, a folksy, small-town lawyer approach to it, which is going to play well in many parts of the country. I do think that what did happen today, Bill, is that both sides were able to present enough evidence and, and at least one witness on each side, a couple more on the Democratic side, which you would expect, so that I don't know that it's moving the needle on impeachment, but for the 6 to 8 percent of the electorate who is interested <laughs> in what the constitutional definition of impeachable is, they got a little bit more of a civics lesson in that today. And I think both sides have done what they need to do. Republicans have held the line for their defense of, of of Donald Trump. And I think the Democrats have given themselves what they want and need in order to make the vote that I think they were going to make anyway. And and it's a great platform for Doug Collins if he does want to run for I Senate, isn't say, it, Greg? I was going to say, beat this thing like a, uh, like a drum. But if he does get in, let's say in a couple of weeks, a couple of months, he can say, as the governor was introducing his pick in, in Atlanta, I was in Washington fighting for your president. Yeah, exactly. All right, let's do this. Let's get our final break of the show out of the way, because when we come back, we've got Heath Garrett here, and we want to ask you, Heath, to uh, share with all of us your observations about the tribute to Johnny Isaacson in the United States Senate yesterday. We'll do that after these messages. Yesterday afternoon, around 2.30 or so, uh, U.S. Senator Johnny Isaacson gave his farewell speech to members of the Senate, and that was, which was followed by, what, Heath, some 40 members of the Senate who asked for time to pay tribute to Isaacson. We we played a little bit of, of Johnny's speech on the show yesterday as he was giving it. Um, but I thought you gave us some notes to Tom Faust before the show went on the air. You pointed out that uh, the Republican conference luncheon, yes. which was going to honor Johnny just among Republicans, turned into a bipartisan luncheon in which virtually every Democrat wanted to attend and came. It, uh, it and a, it something a, like 40 senators spoke on his uh, t paying tribute to him during the session in the afternoon after that. Yeah, 
was very heartfelt. Uh, it was it was a privilege to be there with the senator. I flew up with him on on Monday after working with him for the last 25 years uh, full time. Uh, it was a bittersweet time to be up there with him. But what we didn't expect to happen is what happened, which is truly making history, at least modern history. On every Tuesday, the Democrats have their own lunch and they caucus and they talk politics and policy and the Republicans have their own lunch. And in a rare moment of true bipartisan harmony, which we see more of than the average public does, but, but because of Johnny Isaacson, because of his nature and because of his 25 or 40 years of public history of working across the aisle, uh, Chuck Schumer and the Democrats asked if they could join the Republican luncheon in honor of Johnny Isaacson. And every senator was there except for those who were out of town because they were campaigning for president. Yeah, um, so almost 100 senators there. Then Vice President Pence heard about that and decided to come down uh, from 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, which is very rare for the vice president to be there as well. And so uh, during that luncheon, you had a bipartisan celebration of Johnny Isaacson. And then, again, making a little bit of history for retirement, over 50 senators actually signed up to speak about Johnny <laughs> uh, after he gave his farewell address. And they ran out of time. And so 40 or so got to, got to speak. Uh, but it was really a, an emotional moment for all of us and a great civics lesson. I hope that between the hug uh, that John Lewis gave Johnny Isaacson last week on the House floor and uh, what happened yesterday, there is a call that you can be as ideologically opposed as you want to, but there are a lot of things that aren't truly ideological we need to work on. And hopefully Johnny Isaacson's retirement at least lights a spark uh, in, in doing some of that. Yeah, you know, Greg, on the show yesterday, um, we made the point that you may certainly disagree with some of the positions Johnny Isaacson has taken over the years. You may not be as conservative as much of his uh, policymaking has been, uh, but you can't argue with the kind of decency, the kind of gentlemanly way in which he comported himself in the Senate and the ways in which he reached out to the other side. And I, you've known him for a long time. I can't remember when he's had a bad word to say about anybody. Oh, except one day on our show when he was not a particularly kind about President Trump. But <laughs> I remember that well. But look, I mean, John Lewis is president said it all, right? Um, the congressman um, came over and, and was part of the entourage, right? Um, sitting right. with the senator and his staff. And the senator was, was got emotional when he saw his congressman Lewis there and talked about their friendship at length. Um, and I think that says it all about bipartisan friendships. Um, they're on opposite sides of so many issues, but they have found common cause on other issues. And, and that's what the senator was talking about was he's worried that, that we're losing that in society. Today. Let, let's listen, uh, Andre, to just a little bit of that portion of his uh, remarks, which to the, to the dismay of people like Heath and Eric Tannenblatt, who's up there, Jay Morgan, other longtime friends, as usual— he didn't write it down. It was just extemporaneous. Here's a little about what of what he said. Bipartisan doesn't mean that a Democrat and a Republican talk to each other every once in a while. It doesn't mean it means this. That it means that two people come together, probably have differences, probably have a lot of differences, but they find a way to get to the end of the trail where there's a possibility of a solution. And then they do the things you have to do to get that position. America's today is built on people who found a way to get to that end of the solution. No question about it. Uh, so, Andra, you know, the sad thing is not only is Johnny Isaacson retiring, but that it sounds like he's talking about a bygone era that we are not going to see come back anytime soon. 
Well, I hope it comes back. I'm, yeah. We're not there yet. And that's yeah. the sad thing to see is that what is rock bottom? And I just, my gut says we haven't quite hit rock bottom in terms of our polarization. Um, and I think, you know, after the Trump presidency, just because I don't see President Trump changing anytime soon, regardless of whether or not he's reelected, we're going to have to have a real soul searching conversation about what we want our country to look like, what we want our politics to look like, what we want institutions to look like. Like, you know, the thing that's going on right now with the impeachment hearing is really a huge debate um, about sort of what are the norms of the presidency, what should be codified, what shouldn't be codified, and how does that relate in terms of, you know, how much power our president should have and in particular how much power they should have relative to um, to the legislature. So uh, we need to have those serious conversations. And, and, and part of that is institutionally thinking about what were the things that made the mid-20th century so atypical, actually? Um, of why did people get along? And we can look at common experiences. Everybody had been drafted together. They were all, you know, culturally homogeneous. And so, okay, we're not going back to that. But how do we, in our more diverse country, figure out ways to find common ground and actually force people to humanize each other? I can't remember where... I was. I can't remember if I was on air or if I was listening to somebody. Somebody was like, yeah, but I yell real loud. And I was like, there's no value in yelling really loud. That's just being a bully. Um, and, and, and so, like, how do we sort of have that type of conversation where you don't have to dehumanize or other somebody to say, I have some disagreements, but I'm willing to work with you to come to a good solution? What's next for Johnny? Well, he's not going away, right? Yeah. January 1st, I think Johnny Isaacson has the opportunity to lecture, teach, uh, attend class and be an example of statesmanship and political civility. I'd love to see an inst- Isaacson Institute for Political Civility uh, somewhere, maybe across all of our institutions in the state of Georgia. He will he will be involved in business, uh, and he's going to continue to opine about the process itself. And process does matter. And Johnny Isaacson proves you actually get more done when you treat people the right way all the time, rather than picking battles just for the sake of it. And, and it, we. You know, one of the things that everybody on the Senate floor talked about is how Johnny Isaacson's principle was the idea that there are only two types of people in politics, friends and future friends. Now, that's an anomaly <laughs> in the modern era, but, but worth, worth paying attention to. Bluestein, I give you the last 20 seconds or so, the final words of this show. I love that part about future friends. He learned that selling real estate, and he said that, that he translated that to politics. And I think that's a good thing for all of us to remember that we're talking to friends and future friends. All right. Amen. Johnny Isaacson, we look forward to uh, having a chance to sit down and talk with him uh, on Political Rewind about his life and career uh, fairly soon. That's it for us for today. Dr. Andre Gillespie, Heath Garrett, Greg Bluestein, thank you for a really engaging show. A great day in Georgia politics, a great day for discussion about Georgia politics. Um, We're off tomorrow. Only for a few more weeks are we off on Thursdays. Uh, We'll be back with you Friday at 2 with a brand new Political Rewind. See everybody then.